Hello and welcome to Simple Social Sciences. Today we have a simple psychology session and we are focusing on the behaviourist approach. By the end of the session, you should be able to do the following. Number one, explain how behaviour is learned through classical conditioning. Two, explain how behaviour is learned through operant conditioning. And three, discuss the extent to which behaviours are learned from the environment. Let's start off by looking at some of the key behaviourist assumptions. The very first one is that behaviour is learnt through interactions with the environment. What this basically means is that all humans are born as a blank slate and there are no innate or inherited factors that influence our behaviour. So essentially, behaviourists argue that everything that we are is a result of what we have learnt from our environment. This includes examples such as phobias and even offending behaviour. There are two key ways behaviourists argue that we learn our behaviour. The first one is classical conditioning. What this basically means is that we learn through associations. This was first discovered by Pavlov, who found that animals were able to associate the sound of the bell with presence of food. So before conditioning, food was the unconditioned stimulus. The unconditioned stimulus basically means any stimuli which elicits an unconditioned response. In this scenario, the unconditioned response was salivation. So before any type of conditioning, dogs salivated in response to food. The next stimulus that we need to have a look at is the bell. So the bell was a neutral stimulus because it gave no response in the dogs. However, during conditioning, Pavlov repeatedly paired the bell with the presentation of food. This meant that every time the bell rang, the food was presented and the dog salivated. After multiple pairings, this meant that the bell became the conditioned stimulus as it produced the conditioned response of salivation. Therefore, Pavlov demonstrated the ability to learn through associations, as in the end the dogs learnt to salivate in response to the bell, even without the presence of food. Okay, before we go any further, I need to know that you understand these key words. So what I'm going to do is I will read out the definitions and you're going to tell me which keyword matches this definition. You can either pause the video and say it to yourself, or you can write it down on a bit of paper and check as we go along. Okay, the first one is any stimulus which elicits an unconditioned response. Which keyword am I? The correct answer is the unconditioned stimulus. So the unconditioned stimulus will always elicit an automatic response, which is the unconditioned response. Number two, in Pavlov's experiment, salivation was one, unconditioned stimulus, two, unconditioned response, three, neutral stimulus, four, conditioned stimulus, or five, conditioned response. What was salivation in Pavlov's experiment? The correct answer is unconditioned response. It is unconditioned response because salivation was the automatic response to the presence of food, and food was the unconditioned stimulus. Number three, this stimulus elicits no response. The correct answer is, of course, the neutral stimulus. The neutral stimulus gives no response. And in this situation, the neutral stimulus was the bell because the bell produced no response in the dogs. After multiple pairings of the bell and food, 
which type of stimulus was the bell? The bell became the conditioned stimulus. This is because initially it was the neutral stimulus with no response, but then it becomes the conditioned stimulus as you have paired it with the unconditioned stimulus. Finally, salivation is now one unconditioned stimulus, two unconditioned response, three neutral stimulus, four conditioned stimulus, or five conditioned response. Salivation becomes the conditioned response. So salivation is a response to the conditioned stimulus, which is the bell, and the two of those will always go together. Conditioned stimulus elicits the conditioned response. Okay, let's move on to the second type of conditioning that behaviorists argue shape our behavior. This is operant conditioning. Operant conditioning is basically learning through consequences. It was first proposed by Skinner, who argued that actions followed by reinforcement will be strengthened and more likely to occur in the future. There are two types of reinforcers, positive and negative, and we'll go a bit more in depth in a moment, but punishment also plays an important role in learning. So one of the type of reinforcers Skinner examined were positive reinforcers. These are outcomes that are presented after the behaviour, and in these situations, behaviour is strengthened by the addition of a reward, and this makes behaviour more likely to occur in the future. In Skinner's box, he gave rats and pigeons a little scenario similar to the diagram that you can see. So each box consisted of two lights, a red and green light. It had a lever, a food pellet, and an electrified grid on the bottom. Skinner presented these animals with different coloured lights because when the green light would go off, if the rats pressed the lever, they would be rewarded with a food pellet. This meant that the rats soon learnt to keep pressing the lever so that they can continue to receive the reward. Therefore, the behaviour was positively reinforced and made it more likely that it would occur again in the future. Negative reinforcers is another aspect of Skinner's theory. Negative reinforcers involve the removal of unfavourable outcomes after the display of a behaviour. In these situations, the response is strengthened by avoiding an unpleasant outcome. So in Skinner's boxes, I mentioned there was a green light and a red light. If the rats pressed the lever after the red light, they were given an electric shock. As a result, the rats learnt to only press the lever for a green light and to avoid pressing the lever when they saw the red light. This encouraged more of the desired behaviour, which was to only press the lever when the light turned green, and to avoid pressing the lever when they saw a red light. So earlier on I mentioned that punishment is also an important aspect of Skinner's theory. Punishment is any unpleasant consequence of behaviour. So in these situations, undesirable behaviour is less likely to be repeated. So with positive and negative reinforcers, it always encourages more of the desired behaviour and punishment reduces undesirable behaviour. So in Skinner's box, the electric shocks received was the unpleasant outcome or punishment for pressing the lever when the light was red. Therefore, the undesirable behaviour of pressing the lever when the light was red was decreased. Okay, it's time to check your understanding again before we go any further. So I'm going to read out different scenarios and you're going to tell me which consequence relates to the scenario. Let's begin. 
After performing in a community theatre play, you receive applause from the audience. Is this a positive or negative reinforcer? It is a positive reinforcer because it will encourage you, that reward of the applause will encourage you to go back up on stage and perform again. Number two, you train your dog to fetch by offering him praise and a pat on the head whenever he performs the behaviour correctly. Which type of reinforcer is this? This is a positive reinforcer because you are praising and rewarding the dog for the desirable behaviour and this should promote more in the future. Number three, your teacher tells you that if you have perfect attendance all year, you don't have to take that final exam. Is this a positive or negative reinforcer? This is a negative reinforcer because the final exam is an unpleasant consequence. If you manage to have perfect attendance all year, which is the desired behavior, you get to avoid that punishment at the end of the year. Number five, you can only use your phone if your teacher has said so, otherwise it will get confiscated. Is this a positive or negative reinforcer? This is a negative reinforcer because it encourages more of the desired behaviour, which is only using your phone when you have been given the permission to do so. If you fail to follow this, you're going to get your phone confiscated, which is the unpleasant outcome. So you will do as you are told in order to avoid the punishment. Okay, so hopefully now you can tell me how classical and operant conditioning can explain how we learn behaviour. But we also need to discuss the extent to which behaviour is shaped by the environment. What evidence is there to support this idea? One of the first pieces of evidence we can use to support the idea that behaviour is shaped by the environment is the real-life application that has come from this theory. Classical conditioning has been successfully applied to therapy and especially therapy for phobias. So systematic desensitization uses the concept of classical conditioning to explain how phobias are learnt through faulty associations. So in this type of therapy, it aims to break those associations between the phobic stimuli and those fearful responses. Patients will learn to remain calm in these fearful situations in a process that is known as counter conditioning. So they're basically conditioned to learn a new response, which is a calmer, peaceful response to the things that they are afraid of. As this theory has been used in real life to help improve the quality of life for people, we can argue it has high ecological validity. Another piece of evidence we can use to support the idea that we learn from our environment is by taking a look at the research methods used by behaviourists. So behaviourists use highly controlled methods to investigate behaviour. If we take a look at Skinner, he manipulated the consequences of behaviour, which is the independent variable, and was able to accurately measure the effects on the rats and pigeons' behaviour, which was the dependent variable. This allowed Skinner to establish a cause and effect relationship between the consequences of a behaviour and future frequency of its occurrence. As a result, this increases the validity of the approach to explain behaviour. However, a major criticism against the behaviourist approach is that it ignores other important factors. Behaviourists only focus on the environment and how we learn and interact with the environment and it ignores other important factors in shaping behaviour. For example, the biological approach suggests behaviour is influenced by genetics and neural structures. 
Cognitive approach would argue that our schemas and our information processing will affect our behaviour. These aren't considered in the behaviourist approach, and this means that it's reductionist. Reductionism isn't always negative, but in this case, we could say it reduces the credibility of the approach to explain behaviour because it only offers a partial explanation. Okay, so now you should be able to explain how behaviour is learnt through classical and operant conditioning and discuss to what extent behaviours are learnt from the environment. Okay, so you've reached the end of the session. If you're on YouTube, don't forget to subscribe. If you are listening on any of the podcasts, hit follow so you don't miss out on any future posts.